2: Is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. Tonight marks the 12th anniversary of this radio program. Sunday, August the 16th, 2009, we launched the conspiracy show. Not a lot of radio stations would stick with a radio program like this, particularly in these times that we live in. Before we get rolling, a quick shout out to a brand new Star Chamber level Patreon supporter, Dr. E. Lyle Gross, thank you so much for your amazing support, Dr. Gross. Your generosity is truly appreciated. And if any, any of you listening uh, are interested in becoming an official supporter of this program, Strange Planet, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash strange planet, patreon.com slash strange planet. There's a whole host of different tiers for you to choose from. All right, this is a sad anniversary. We lost Paul Hellier, the Honorable Paul Hellier, passed away Sunday, August the eighth, at the age of ninety-eight. And uh, Mr. Hellier was on this program a number of times, maybe a half dozen times over the years. And of course, in two thousand and five, he went public about his belief in the UFO ET reality during a speech, a now very famous speech at the University of Toronto, and that was supposed to be kind of a one-off speech. But it became an all-consuming passion for Paul, and he spent the next 15 years speaking at UFO conferences and writing books on the subject. And this hour, we'll pay tribute to Paul. Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand Communications and Zealand News Network, knew Paul very well. They traveled the country together. Victor was instrumental, of course, in convincing Mr. Hellier to speak out in 2005. In the second hour... Victor Vigiani stays with me, and uh, he and I will welcome Daniel P. Sheehan to the program. He's a constitutional and public interest lawyer and passionate UFO disclosure advocate. He'll be here to talk about his five-day conference, Making Contact, Extraterrestrials Are Here. And Daniel is also legal counsel for Luis Elizondo, the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, ATIP an unpublicized U.S. government program that was created in 2007 that was committed to uh, the investigation of UFOs. Now, Elizondo finds himself in a battle with Pentagon officials who are denying that he had any role at all in the A.T.I.P. program. Isn't that just like the Pentagon? So we'll find out more about that with uh, Daniel in uh, hour two. Uh, But this hour, we look back on the work of the Honorable Paul Hellyer.
1: It wasn't the fact that there are UFOs, which I am totally convinced there are, that made me go public. And I'm concerned about the future of our society, concerned about the future of our planet, and I'm concerned about governments that claim to be democratic and where somebody other than the elected officials are running the show. You might say, you've got to be kidding, but I'm not kidding. And then the second major issue is the question of saving the planet literally. Time has come to lift the veil of secrecy. Let the truth merge so there can be a real and informed debate. Who knows? That could be just the antidote the world needs to end this week-driven, power centered madness,
2: Alright, there he is, uh, the late Honourable Paul Hellyer. Here to help us pay tribute to Paul is Victor Vigiani. Victor, of course, no stranger to the program. He's a retired school principal from Toronto. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology and Psychology and a Master's in Educational Administration and Curriculum Development. His research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomenon spans over 30 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ETI disclosure issues, and of course, the executive director of Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network. Victor, welcome back. How are you?
0: I'm just fine, Richard, and it's such a pleasure to be with you again. Thanks a lot for that great introduction.
2: All right. Well, do you want to just share maybe a few details concerning Paul's uh, passing? And I know you attended his funeral, and uh, Mm. you can tell us a little bit about that. What happened to Paul? I know he was getting up there in 98. He just celebrated, I think, his 98th birthday. Uh,
0: That's right. What happened? He had a fall in July, didn't he? That's right. On uh, June 15th, I believe it was, uh, I was informed by his by his family representative, that uh, Paul had a fall. Um, I'm not sure why. He lives in a condominium here in Toronto on the lakeshore, and he was, for some reason, in the, the garage of the condominium, and he had a fall. And at that time, he somehow tripped either over a stair or whatever it was, and he hit his head, which caused a very, very serious injury to his head, and there was some serious bleeding on his brain and from that point uh, he was taken to the hospital and he was uh, monitored for actually about two or three weeks after and it was a very very unfortunate situation but they they managed to stop the bleeding uh, in the you know when he was in the hospital eventually about a week and a half maybe two weeks later he was brought home uh, on his own assistance because um, he wanted to uh, just be at home So they managed to bring him home in a hospital bed, and they provided all uh, kinds of care for him 24-7 at home. But eventually, on August 8th, uh, he did pass away with his entire family surrounding him.
2: I know you went to his funeral, and you Mm -hmm. had a very interesting conversation with, I guess, the pastor that that
0: officiated at the funeral. Mm -hmm. Uh, can, Can you share those details with us? Yeah, what happened was we went to the funeral, and it was a bright, sunny day outside the church we sat in the church and there's some organ play and uh through the whole thing uh, several people spoke there was some organ music and uh, several readings but at some point about uh halfway through reverend uh malcolm sinclair gave the eulogy for paul and uh as Eulogies generally go. You know, you hear all kinds of you know great things about the uh, about the deceased and and how uh, Reverend Sinclair knew Paul. They had gone to lunch several times together, and it, it seemed to me that those two were became very very close. Uh, as indicated by the number of lunches they went to. But during the whole eulogy, which was totally unexpected to me, uh, Richard, uh, the Reverend mentioned that Paul, amidst all of the other political situations that he was involved in over his life, you know, being Prime Minister of Defense and Deputy Prime Minister and all the other kind of um, things that he was involved in, the minister actually mentioned the extraterrestrial issue That Paul was involved in from 2005 and onward to this day and uh, that sort of caught me off guard and uh, after the whole ceremony was finished there was some beautiful organ music and we moved out of the church and they sort of gathered on the lawn in front of the church I made my way to the Reverend I asked him I said my goodness i was absolutely fascinated by the fact that that you felt it necessary to mention that Paul was involved with you know, UFOs and extraterrestrials and you actually brought it up at the eulogy. My goodness, how did that happen? And essentially, uh, the Reverend indicated to me that Paul wanted him to actually bring this issue up. If it ever did happen, that he would have a, a, a chance to, to, to eulogize Paul. That's how it happened and, and I was very, very surprised that a Methodist minister would bring that kind of thing up during a eulogy. But the fact of the matter was that you know, the reverend did feel it necessary to bring that up and to make people aware that Paul was very, very interested in and committed to uh, the extraterrestrial disclosure issue. I was very surprised about that. Right. I could tell within, within the eyes of the, the reverend that this man uh, believed Paul to the nth degree, that he felt that this was a very real issue and that it needed to be talked about in a public forum like a eulogy. Which So did
2: Reverend right. Sinclair actually –
0: Tell you that he
2: believed as Paul did
0: in the u f o e t reality? yes, it was pretty really touching the way it happened because he's a very tall man, as the reverend was as 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 also Paul was, but i, I we both had our masks on we're standing outside the church, and I'm looking at this man directly into his eyes, Richard. And I could tell that the way the Reverend was articulating his his feeling about Paul's belief in this, that he actually believed that Paul believed it. And so did he. And actually um, told me that uh, Paul had had this UFO experience up at Rundle Lodge with his family and friends on the on the dock. So it was not beyond belief. The Reverend did, in fact, believe that Paul believed it. And so did he. Wow. I'm trying to remember
2: the last time you and Paul and I were together on this program and uh, it seems to me it had it was around the anniversary of his 2005 address at the University of Toronto, which of course you were very instrumental in in convincing Paul Hellier to speak out publicly for the first time about UFOs. That was in, was it September 2005? That's correct. I'm wondering if we did like was it a 15th anniversary maybe was it the t- t- 2020?
0: Perhaps I think it was two thousand and fifteen if I recall uh, correctly that we did the um, sort of a uh, you know a recounting of what Paul was involved in at the time and how much water had passed under the bridge um, since two thousand and five uh, yeah, I think that was the last time that we did it Richard
2: well, that was the last time we spoke about that, but we we did have him on after that because he had mm-hmm. um, he he, um, he published i think what four or five books um in the uh, you know the last several years of his life and mm-hmm. here's actually this is a clip from I don't know if this was the last time he was on I think not but this was from 2017 and uh you and I were talking to him about the uh, I don't know if it's on the anniversary of uh, that famous uh, address but uh, we asked him about whether his family or friends were talking to him, maybe maybe even advising him not to speak out because mm-hmm. of his legacy. And uh, here's, here's what he had to say about that. This is uh, Paul Hellyer uh, appearing on this program, I believe, back in 2017.
1: They talked about that later when I'd done it. But it was really a matter of conscience, uh, Richard, because after reading The Day After Roswell and realizing that it was the truth, and then, uh, as Victor has not mentioned, confirming this with the retired United States Air Force General, who when I called him, he had been told what I was reading. And when I called him, he said, every word is true and more. And so with that confirmation, and him going into the more for about 20 minutes, and telling me that there had been face-to-face meetings between the United States officials, and sentient beings from other star systems. I was confirmed in my conviction, which I already had then, that I should go public because I was afraid that at some stage the United States might, the Air Force might get us into a galactic war, knowing their sort of propensity to shoot first and ask questions after. So I thought, the American people don't know what's going on and they should because this is a very important issue and I have a responsibility to speak the truth uh, so that some people at least will know what is actually happening and should take whatever action they feel is uh, required to, uh, You know, as a result. So that's sort of how it got going, and the other interesting part of it was I was getting married a week to the day after the speech at the University of Toronto, so I phoned my fiance, who was the widow of my best friend ever, Know, that I'd known for 30 or 40 years and told her about it and she was not wildly enthusiastic but she said if you feel it's important in the public interest go ahead and do it and I said well it'll just be a one time thing you know a, a <laughs> famous last words well <laughs> right. so I didn't yes. mean to tell her an untruth because I have a long long reputation of telling the truth and it, I pride myself on doing that but it turned out that Once I went public, then the papers started coming in from all over the world, some classified and some not, and dozens of books, and then there were a lot of people who wanted to brief me, including Dr. Stephen Greer and a whole list of others that were interested in meeting and talking to me, and my learning curve started going up and up and up, and it's been going up ever since.
0: All right.
2: That was uh, the late Honorable Paul Hellier on this program back in, I think, 2017. And um, so his, uh, his uh, wife, Sandra, is it?
0: That's right. Yes.
2: Right. Right. So she was expecting this was to be a one off. <laughs> um, did you ever have conversations with Sandra about, you know, how that one off turned into really the
0: a, a passion and obsession for Paul for the rest of his days? Well, it, it's really kind of strange that you should say that because uh, and on so many occasions, uh, Richard, uh, it 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 happened that uh, for one reason or another, um, I would have to call Paul uh, on the telephone for just a consultation on something or other, and uh, to be quite honest, uh, Paul very rarely ever answered the phone by himself. He 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 was not the first one to the telephone. And uh, during some of those conversations or when I did call, Sondra was always the first one to pick up the phone. I'm not sure exactly why that happened. as a family dynamic. But um, I I had occasions to just sort of chat with her uh, you know, about this whole thing. And she never really doubted uh, how intensely Paul felt about what he was doing. Uh, she never really felt that it was something that um, she could dissuade him from doing. And I always felt in my uh, limited conversations or or short conversations with her that she had to support what he was doing. Because as you heard in that last clip, Paul had a propensity to tell the truth and to be very upfront uh, and authentic about what he spoke about. And she made no bones about the fact that uh, no matter what she said or what any family member said or what anybody else said about uh, what Paul had to do, was that uh, he needed to speak the truth, He needed to speak what he knew about this issue, and as in, in every other issue uh, that um, that came up. And Paul was not one to be uh, uh, you know set back or set aside from anybody who challenged him on anything. and i'll I'll name people who he came into um, not conflict with necessarily, but he took umbrage with uh, even people like the uh, the like the the prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Trudeau um he he and pierre had some very significant differences on many many different uh, issues and paul was not one to stand back or to step aside from any kind of controversy at all and he would challenge anyone uh when when the truth came forward to to be spoken so in, in essence sandra stood by that with paul and she knew that no matter what she did or said and even any family members that paul was going to speak uh, what he needed to say about this this issue and any other issue. So, yes, she was very instrumental in supporting him and uh, articulating to me that this is something that Paul was driven to talk about. So, yes, uh, in answer to your question, she was very fully supportive, maybe reluctant at the beginning, right. but eventually realized this is something she had to do uh, with, with, with uh, to support Paul. In other words, she never said, "You, Victor, you are the one who dragged <laughs> well, him into this." <laughs> well, no, actually, she never did it. It's great that you should mention that. Uh, Paul, on a number of occasions, we would when we would do interviews or uh, we were on, you know, a, some sort of, uh, you know, tour. We did our cross Canada tour. With the modern knowledge tool, to tour. he 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 went out of his way occasionally to to say that Victor Vigiani was the one who got me into this. And my goodness, how come this happened? Yeah, so he did blame me, sort of tongue in cheek, uh, with the whole eventuality as to what he he got himself into on uh, September twenty seventh, uh, two thousand and five, at the University of Toronto. Yeah, he did do that.
2: All right, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue our. Uh Tribute to the late Honorable Paul Hellier. Victor Vigiani from ZLAN News Network and ZLAN Communications stays with us. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Daniel P. Sheehan will be here to talk about his uh, five-day conference called Making Contact. Stay with us.
1: The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarret.
2: All right, uh, Victor Vigiani stays with us. Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications, and we're paying tribute to the late Paul Hellier, who passed away one week ago at the age of ninety-eight. And uh, we were talking about that famous speech that you were instrumental, you know, in convincing Paul Hellier to, to speak out publicly for the first mm. time. And at that point, he became the highest-ranking uh, G8. I guess, government official or former government, government official to actually speak out about uh, UFOs. That's historical. And, um, you know, you had a major, major part in that, Victor. Now, we uh, back in 2017, we also talked to Paul not only about, you know, his legacy and whether his family and friends were comfortable with him speaking out. We also talked about what really got the ball rolling for him. I mean, I know he had a UFO sighting, but he Mm -hmm. was somewhat skeptical. And then, of course, He read a book, uh, The Day After Roswell by Colonel uh, Corso. And um, here's a. We we asked him about, uh, you know, whether he, how he came to read the book and whether he believed it at first. Here's how that sounded back in uh, 2017. Here, once again, Paul Hellyer. It's interesting because if I'm remembering correctly, an earlier conversation that w- that we had. This started off as kind of just some summer reading. You were taking some books up to the cottage. Someone said, "Here, read this one too."
1: It was Pierre know, who right. sent me the book. Right. And this was after he had been trying for two years to get me interested. And when he sent me this, I thought I have it would make good summer reading.
2: Right. Right.
1: I couldn't find it when I wanted to take it up in 2004. So I had to read The Life of Pi, which uh, I found quite entertaining, and I didn't know until near the end that it was fiction. But this one was different. And in 2005, I was looking for another book, couldn't find it, and there staring me in the face was The Day After Roswell, and so I took that, and that was uh, the beginning of this long journey. Right.
2: I mean, it really changed the trajectory of your life. When you're reading Corso's book, The Day After Roswell does it hit you immediately as credible or are you reserving judgment until you can call some of your contacts in the U.S. for verification?
1: No, it didn't take long for me to realize that it was credible because I recognized the names of the generals, most of them, and many of the air bases. And I was familiar with those from my time in the uh, Department of National Defense. So I, it would, it had the tenor of a true story from the time I really got into it
2: all right there's uh, Paul Hellyer speaking on this program back in 2017 about the day after Roswell Uh, Victor you uh, you had lunch many lunches with with Paul Um, Hellyer did you ever talk about anything other than UFOs or was it all consuming for him
0: Um, yeah that's a good point Um, I I, you know during our, our many you know Lunches together, uh, both on you know, I, you know, meeting informally with him, talking on the phone, but sitting face to face with him at lunches that we had, um, there were other issues that came forward. I know he was not someone who was, was, was reticent about talking about other things with respect to, you know, government secrecy and um, the the way in which governments tended to avoid any kind of. Um, discussion about this and that that's something that confirmed uh, his belief that um, governments were either hiding something or that they were very very highly reluctant to talk about the UFO issue and that's something that really bothered him that uh, in addition to some economic uh, issues that he was very involved in too with respect to the economic uh, reform that he was involved in there were uh, These things were something that really got under Paul's skin. And you could tell that uh, when he began talking about any of these issues, that it bothered him. It bothered him that uh, governments that were elected by the people and for the people would be reticent to to talk about these kinds of things. And not only reticent, but proactively keeping these things secret. And that is something that I learned about Paul that he was extremely upset about, extremely um, concerned about that the governments that were elected by by people would that would that uh, they'd keep these kinds of things from them. And this is something that motivated Paul very, very strongly in all of our discussions. That he um, he he went out of his way to always talk about the fact that governments were there for the people, or was were supposed to be there for the people, but uh, in in these kinds of incidences that uh, were of intense and major concern uh, to people, that governments chose to deny the fact that certain things were going on. And this is something that Paul very, very strongly opposed. And he, he opposed it to the point of, almost becoming alienated with his, within his political career, and that's one of the things that he suffered from with respect to his, uh, his interaction with you know Pierre Trudeau, as I mentioned, and to many other people within the Liberal Party. So he was, he was in fact, a, ma- a maverick because he believed that governments were there to tell the truth, but they did not always do that. Did he have regrets? Not regrets, but did he ever
2: say things like, "You know, geez, I wish I was thirty years younger," or "Starting my political career over again now"? If I knew what I knew then, what I know now, everything would be different.
0: Um, I, I, I never really got that sense that he, he was looking back in that way, um, and and I would venture to say that if he knew back, you know, thirty or forty years ago, uh, what he know knew now. And what he came forward about in two thousand and five, if he'd have known that um, then, I'm I'm convinced that he would have indeed stepped forward to to bring this to bring this up. Because as a matter of fact, this is some, a point of interest that in the uh, the, the library and and uh, archives Canada there are letters, and this is really going to be uh, very strange to understand. But there are letters written uh, by Paul Hellier. Uh, in response to citizens about the UFO issue, uh, people would write letters to uh, to to him as a minister of defense back then, and ask Mr. Hellier whether or not these UFOs were real. And I have a couple of letters, two specific ones. There were memos in the in the Library and Archives Canada, and Mr. Hellier at that time uh towed the party line and said, No, there's nothing to these things. We had no evidence about things, and there's nothing that's come across my desk that would prove that these these UFO or, or flying saucers or whatever they they called them back at that time were real. And um, and I brought this to the attention of Paul, and he he back then that's what he he knew. He didn't feel that as a fervent belief. He just did not know that these things were in fact as real as they were at the time, so he 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 towed the party line at the time, and I think that's something that he he probably grew to regret, but not knowing what the eventualities and the realities about that really really were so it was something that I know that he regretted, and if he I think if he had to do it all over again and he knew uh, then what he knew now. Uh, he would definitely be someone who would come forward with the evidence about what uh, NORAD uh, knew or what the, the Royal Canadian Air Force knew at the time. So, yes, uh, it, my, my sense would be that he would have stood up very, very frankly about this issue. But then again, the evidence was not as forceful then for him as right. it was when he came forward in 2005. But Can you imagine if, again,
2: he was 30, 40 years younger – Mm-hmm. he had he was still minister of defense and he he read corso's book the day after roswell uh how and, and again as minister of defense how that could have changed history absolutely uh unimaginable um now mm-hmm. i want to i want to play another mm-hmm. clip here this is mm-hmm. uh, so after he reads corso's book uh he calls one of his i guess an old colleague who was a us Army or a U.S. Air Force general to see what he could tell him about Corso's book. Let's have a listen. This is uh, Paul Hellier back in 2017. It's interesting because if I'm remembering correctly, and er- oh, wrong clip. Let's play this one. Here we go.
1: I was I was uh, very anxious to check it out with uh, a retired Air Force general that uh, was a friend of my. Uh, of my nephew and who I had met and knew uh, just for verification. And, of course, uh, when I phoned him, and even before I could say hello and how are you, he said every word is true and more. Well, that's a good start.
2: Right, right. And I know, to my knowledge, uh, you've never identified this person aside from a retired Air Force general, correct? Yeah, right, right. And and was that uh, was that conversation contingent on you never revealing his name or or?
1: Um, it wasn't contingent on it, but I know uh, that he would be in. I know from what happened later that he would have been in terrible trouble had I done that.
2: When you say what happened later, are you able to share that?
1: Well, there was a uh, one of the uh, officers that trailed me around for a year or two and uh, wanted me to say who it was because he was going to beat him up, and uh, so on. A, a
2: U.S. military official f- trailed yeah. you for a, a year wanting his name so that he could go and, and beat him up?
1: and the CIA phoned me, too, and uh, Paul Harris managed to uh, somehow divert that one.
2: Did they ever threaten you directly, Paul?
1: Um, not directly, No. No. Although they they tried to they tried to feed me disinformation several times so that I would repeat something that they had given me that they knew they could then show was only part truth or whatever in an effort to discredit me. they tried to do that several times, but i being an old farm boy and knowing the difference between <laughs> wheat and chaff. I managed to avoid being
2: sucked into any of those uh, situations all right we'll uh, Victor we'll take a quick time out when we come back let's uh, circle back and uh, and I hate that phrase why did I use it? <laughs> it's circle back it must be banished anyway we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, what we just heard uh, Paul Hellyer being uh, trailed by a um, a shadowy figure from the military industrial complex and uh, then fed disinformation by the CIA. We'll uh, pick up on that with Victor Vigiani when we come back. Stay with us. And we're back with Victor Vigiani as we pay tribute to the late Paul Hellyer and uh, the clip that I played before the break. Paul talking about that conversation he had with an unnamed U.S. Air Force general telling him everything he read in Corso's book The Day After Roswell was true, everything and more. Uh, then he talked about being a uh, trailed by some mysterious figure with the, uh, the Pentagon perhaps who wanted to know the identity of that U S air force general so that I suppose he could uh, well, he said, beat him up quote end (laughs) quote. He talked about Paula Harris, UFO journalist, photographer, Paula Harris, getting him out of that situation. Do you know anything about that?
0: What did Paula Harris do? Well, I know that uh, I don't know anything specifically about what Paula did, but I know that with Paula's contacts, Uh, she managed to, um, I guess, highlight the fact that Paul could have been and was, in fact, being, uh, quote-unquote, followed by that. Now, what her contacts uh, knew about uh, what Paul was doing or how she might have dissuaded him, uh, that contact, uh, I I really don't have any specific information about that, Richard, to be really honest with you.
2: Did he ever talk to you in, in any more detail about being trailed by this individual? I mean, who does that? They they want to they want to find out the
0: identity of this person mm-hmm. so they can go and quote unquote beat them up. Well, it, it, I know for a fact that um, at one point uh, during our conversations, um, Paul and I did did discuss, and he actually asked me. Um, I, and I, I don't have any specific time reference on this, but I think it was. About a year or so after he came forward in two thousand and five um, it it appeared that Paul wanted to dig more deeply into this issue, and he asked me um, uh, and I, I remember specifically the phone conversation that we had um, He asked me he said, "Who are the people um, that that I need to talk to about this and one of the people that um, uh, that he mentioned and, and that I mentioned was Shirley MacLaine and um, that was one of the individuals who had because she was had been on um, uh, I guess it was Larry King live at one point uh, and she and Larry King spoke about the whole UFO issue. And he wanted to know more about what she knew about this. So uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure if Paul had seen that episode of Larry, the Larry King live, but I referenced uh, Shirley MacLaine. I said, you may wish to speak with, with Shirley MacLaine about this. And he literally he went down to uh, to California uh, in Los Angeles, and I know he did have uh, several meetings uh, with Shirley McLean about this about this issue and of course, as many of your your people are aware of, that uh, Shirley McLean had her own uh, UFO kind of belief system in addition to knowing uh, about uh, Dennis Kucinich. Uh, His experience with UFOs, and Dennis Kucinich did articulate that in one of the presidential election campaign interviews. Kucinich, Uh, former uh, congressman, U.S. uh, House of Representatives for, I believe it was Ohio. That's correct, yes. Right. And he came forward and was roundly criticized for even articulating anything about that. So Paul had some very intense conversations uh, with Shirley McLean about her belief in this whole UFO issue and also about why Dennis Kucinich would have the courage to come forward in a presidential debate to actually talk about or at least articulate that he had had his own experience. So it was very clear to me that Paul was intent on going to the deepest ends of, um, of his uh, I guess search about um, who in a in a in a priority kind of either celebrities or other politicians who would want to articulate this and so Paul was intent on digging very very deeply into this and uh, it, it was something that I know that uh, Shirley McLean was very very intense about. And with respect to him being followed by, or at least, you know, um, <laughs> inadvertently intimidated by the CIA, I would have absolutely no doubt in my mind that people like Shirley McLean, Dennis Kucinich, and Paul Hellier were looked at very, very intensely about what they believed and how they wanted to come forward about this publicly. So I have no doubt in my mind that, that what Paul talked about and being followed by certain individual, certain individuals was, in fact, very, very, very true and very authentic.
2: we just got a couple of minutes here before we roll into the break. When we come back, we'll play more of um, our interview with Paul, and uh, he talks more about what was discussed with that U.S. Air Force general. Mm-hmm. Um, but just briefly, I know his first book, Light at the End of the Tunnel, mm-hmm. or his first book in in, in terms of this this field, this right. subject mm-hmm. matter. Uh, he had you read that manuscript. Tell me
0: about it. Well, <laughs> it was very odd that um, that he he called me and he he said I'm about to, to write this book, or I've written this this, this book or manuscript, and I just need um, some sort of editing with, the whole, with respect to the whole thing, and um, we met for lunch, and he gave me the manuscript of it, and it was, you know, a typed manuscript on one side of each page, and it was, my goodness, Richard, it was at least <laughs> two inches thick. It was just huge, so I took it home. Uh, and it it just happened to be that I was going away on vacation uh, for for about two weeks. So I took it with me, and I I read it very intently, um, and he asked me to make notes on it. And there was so much in this book, not just about the UFO issue, but with respect to his intense involvement with meeting with other foreign uh, foreign leaders, foreign, uh, you know, uh, d- defense ministers of his of his own parallel uh, kind of political situation and other people that he had been involved in and it was just way way too long uh, and I guess he just sort of opened up his whole mind and just wrote this thing so i uh, I suggested certain kinds of edits within the whole things things that I thought were kind of not irrelevant but not necessarily pointed to to the reader and uh, he edited that down and um, it came out to be about. One third of the size of what he, <laughs> what he actually put forward. And uh, with respect to the UFO issue, uh, he was spot on with most of the things that uh, that I thought were important. I, I, I very uh, circumspectly did not um, edit or kind of discount much of what he had said with, with respect to that. So factually speaking, he had everything down pat with respect to what he knew, who he had spoken to about this whole issue and how he came to believe what he believed. So that part of the book was extremely well articulated and really didn't need that much um, editing. All right, we'll uh, take
2: another time out, come back and uh, play some more uh, from the late Honorable Paul Hellier, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us. More in a moment. Don't go away. <laughs>
1: Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is
2: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani stays with us as we pay tribute to the late Honorable Paul Hellier. We were talking about his conversation with his unnamed Air Force General, U.S. Air Force General, about Philip Corso's book and the UFO ET reality I wanted to go back to this conversation with this Air Force General. Some of his revelations to you about various races of, of ETs that were interacting. Can you walk us through some of those points that he made with you on No,
1: he didn't get into that. I think, um, apart from uh, it, the fact that uh, U.S. officials... That, that first of all, the book was, in his opinion, 100% true. I don't think that was quite... Probably 95%. But... Um, He told me something that uh, I didn't know, which I think a lot of people don't know, and that is that um, when you get into the argument of nothing travels faster than the speed of light, it isn't true, and that uh, gravity travels faster than the speed of light, and that most of the spaceships are uh, anti-gravity, and there are other, you know, we don't get into wormholes and that sort of thing tonight, but... uh, there are other means of speeding up travel through space that we just didn't know about and weren't in the books, of course, that we were taught uh, of during school. So uh, people like my, even one of my sons, he says, well, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. is isn't correct. That's what I call the old reality.
2: There you go, the old reality. Gravity mm-hmm. traveling faster than the speed of light. Did he have those kind of... Deep oh, conversations, science, oh. based on the you know the new reality, the science behind UFO propulsion systems.
0: Definitely, uh, we spoke at length about that kind of thing in several of the interviews that I did with him, you know, personally and even in conversations. Um, it, Paul was definitely not a quantum in uh, you know, a physicist by any stretch of the imagination, but because of his interaction with other individuals who had insights into that. Paul became convinced that this whole idea of quantum physics, and and uh, the quantum reality, and then the the the, the idea of um, connectivity of all parts of matter within within the cosmos, was definitely uh, definitely played a part in the way that these uh, UFO so-called craft moved within the cosmos, uh, and this kind of um, uh, entanglement allowed. Um, and he believed this very firmly that that this this form of, of entanglement allowed every single particle of matter in the cosmos to be connected to every other single particle, which kind of uh, stands um, very very true with respect to quantum physics. So that somehow that these extraterrestrial uh, civilizations and the beings that, that, that uh, pilot their craft have some sort of way of moving within the cosmos instantaneously from one point in the universe to another which fits in in line with a lot of the ideas of quantum physics, that you automatically have access to some form of energy, the zero-point energy, to move from one part of the universe instantaneously to another. And that's what enables these craft to move the incredible distances that are involved uh, within the cosmos. So uh, there really is no such thing as time and distance uh, being far-fetched with these extraterrestrial craft. And that's how they come to this planet and other planets, too, um, to, to, to manifest themselves. And that's the way they come into our our own airspace. They, they come in we see these blinking lights or or these craft and they're able to move instantaneously, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 miles an hour in our own atmosphere, Richard, and without creating a sonic boom. Or, or, or literally destroying themselves in our own atmosphere. So somehow these craft have access to this kind of energy. And Paul believed this very, very fervently. Uh, and I know that in his um, in his uh, display of, of his own account of a UFO, it moved from one part of the sky to another within a blink of a second. So he became very convinced that this whole idea of quantum physics and entanglement was indeed part of how these extraterrestrial civilizations could not only move, you know, within time and space, but here... On this lonely planet in, in the way they do here and surprising all of us about their reality and the way they manifest themselves in our own airspace. He talked about the different races of mm-hmm. ET,
2: of E.T.s. Did he ever talk to you about about how he came to believe that
0: or know that? Um, I think uh, he, in in speaking with, um, I know Shirley McLean had, had a, a very um, intense effect on how Paul believed these kinds of things, and I think he also was involved with Charles Holt with respect to uh, some of the meetings that the United States government had had uh, with uh, these extraterrestrial beings at Murak Air Force Base. So I, I think Paul. Um, came out on a bit of a limb on that i'm not sure exactly where he got all of his information about the number of uh of races that that were engaging the planet but he he named a, a number like 57 different races that were actually involved uh in engaging here in the planet and uh, i think that's something that, that paul was roundly criticized for and uh I'm not sure exactly how he developed all of those kind of insights with respect to the number of, of races that were were involved with the planet but I know he did very fervently believe that um the Eisenhower administration was in fact in contact with a, with one or two at least the bare minimum, extraterrestrial civilization. And he believed that fervently. And to be really honest with you, uh, that is something that I've come to believe personally. Uh, actually, did happen because a, you know, there was a, a Catholic bishop involved there. Uh, McIntyre, Bishop of Chicago, was involved with that. And there's a whole story about how the Catholic Church was, in fact, involved uh, with respect to the UFO extraterrestrial issue. So it's all entwined in a very, very tight. Uh, take a uh, uh, knot of information with respect to how government and and the Vatican were involved with these extraterrestrial races, and uh, I'm I'm going to believe that uh, to to the day that I die, that the Vatican does in fact know much much more about that, and I think Paul was was a was a believer in that authentic part of the UFO ET issue. Did he
2: ever express interest in making contact? You know, like Dr. Stephen Greer's. Um, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Mm-hmm. H- himself
0: doing yes. that? Yes, yes. Actually, no, not really. I know that he and Stephen Greer had a very close relationship because uh, several years after Paul came forward, uh, Stephen Greer uh, and Stephen Bassett came to Toronto and we hosted uh, the... The three of them at the uh, at Salle College uh, in in a sort of a symposium, which gathered. And I, th- I think that what happened there was he became involved with Stephen with respect to these contact issues. But it wasn't necessarily something that that Stephen that Stephen um, was able to convince Paul to do because uh, you know Stephen Greer has these you know CE five contact experiences. Uh, to my knowledge, that's not something that Paul became very involved in. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but it's not something that he, that he bought into uh, completely. It, it was more of a, a more of a belief in the documentation with respect to the UFO issue rather than encountering the, the, these things. But I do know that um, one of the um, the producers of the uh, the making contact, which we'll talk about uh, later, uh, Mark Sims, Mark Sims had um, an encounter with an actual extraterrestrial being. And this is something that Paul Hellyer talked about with Mark at length uh, about because of this 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 engagement that Mark Sims had with an extraterrestrial being. uh, He shared that with Paul, and that was something that uh, really brought Paul to the forefront of actually believing that individuals do have the capacity to encounter a very personal relationship with some of these extraterrestrial beings. And that's not something that Paul talked about publicly a lot, but I know that he and Mark did have long conversations about that. We've just got about a minute and a half here before
2: the new or before the break at the top of the hour, and then we'll bring Daniel P. Sheehan onto the program to talk about his conference, Making Contact, and mm-hmm. representing Luis, Luis Elizondo. Uh, just in the time that remains, do you think there's another... Paul Hellier, uh, someone of his, let's say, gravitas, his position, waiting in the wings, maybe who was inspired by Paul Hellier, who will make his, you know, his his pronouncement on a public stage stage about UFOs.
0: Uh, In a Canadian sense, or just generally speaking, well, maybe generally, generally, yeah, generally speaking, um, I'm going to go out on a limb, uh, Richard, and say something that that will be controversial, and I know that uh, uh, with respect to politics and everything, but. I am sensing that or I do sense that anyone who does get involved in this issue, once they grab onto it uh, because of the either the political gravitas of it or the the intensity of it, uh, and they actually uh, commit themselves to the issue, have an issue themselves with this personally. And I'm going to say and this is, you know, I can be criticized for this and I'll, I'll stand out on limb on it. But someone like Mark uh, Rubio, the uh, Uh, The the senator who has come forward with the UAP issue in the Senate Intelligence Committee, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Mark Rubio is not doing this uh, in terms of coming forward about, you know, the declaration of the UAP issue just on a political thing standpoint. I believe that Mark Rubio, someone is someone who has had either uh, know someone who has a belief in this or an experience or he himself has had something. Okay. People, people I'm going to leave it right people.
2: there. Uh, okay. Victor, yep. We're going to pick that up on the other side. Sure. With let's, let's do
0: that. Mm-hmm. Victor Vigiani stays with me. Daniel P. Sheehan next making contact. Stay with us.